0: Everyone loves movie trailers, except when they give away the plot of the movie. But how often do you think about where those trailers come from?
1: Most people think movie studios make them. Probably cut by the editor who edited the movie, right?
0: It's actually almost the opposite of what really happens. When a distributor or studio is ready to market something, they turn to highly specialized trailer agencies to make the trailer.
1: The Refinery, one of these trailer agencies, have an online training program that teaches you how to get a job at a trailer agency.
0: The program walks you through the process of making an actual movie trailer using the same project files that the real editors use, and at every step of the way, you get feedback from real trailer editors who work at the Refinery.
1: Then, when you submit your final movie trailer, they review it, and if they're impressed, they might invite you in for an interview you to work at the refinery the program
0: is called the art of the trailer and one graduate has already earned a full-time junior editor position at the refinery
1: you could be next you can check it out at maketrailers.com and if you use the promo code mmih you'll get 20 percent off for a limited time
0: learn how to become a pro trailer editor and make a movie trailer under the guidance of real trailer editors at maketrailers.com
1: that's maketrailers.com you know making movies is hard making movies is hard
0: Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital and DVD and Tubi and where else, Liz?
1: Amazon Prime, right?
0: Amazon Prime, too. Yes, indeed.
1: I'm Liz Manishel. I am Alrick's pimp, but I'm also a writer, director, producer. <laughs> I have directed two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, and I'm currently making a third Best Friends Forever. I'm a producer's rep and a distribution consultant, and I used to work at Sundance. And I am required to say that every time I introduce myself.
0: Yeah, it's it's a, it's a good thing to say. I'd say it, too, if, if it was true for me. This week, we welcome entertainment lawyer Chris Perez of Donaldson, Califf & Perez on the show to talk about what his firm does and how they help filmmakers make and distribute their films. After that, we play another round of The Game. But first, Liz, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing really well. I am paying my casting director today. Like she, She signed, put forth an agreement. We redlined it a little bit because I have a former attorney on my producing team. But she signed it. I'm sending off a check to her. She already sent an invoice and she's sending me a list of actors that she thinks are appropriate for the one actor we're going to try to attach in the next couple of weeks to months, like in the next few days. Like we are, I'm going to look at a list of actors soon. So that is really exciting. What I think is kind of funny. I don't know if it's funny, but as you know, I've been running my own Patreon campaign where I've been documenting the... Pre-production and development process of making this movie. And, like, people are starting to drop off because it's been a mm. year where I was like, mm. hey, we're going to make this movie. And then the strikes happened, so we were delayed for, you know, obviously everyone was delayed. But now things are happening, but it's right when people are starting to leave the Patreon. So, like... Let them know. know <laughs> I just <laughs> feel like they're missing, like, the actual cool stuff that's happening. I should let them know, but I don't want them to be like... Oh, she's guilting me into joining this Patreon campaign. <laughs> but like we're moving, we're moving and we're going to attach an actor in the coming weeks to slash months.
0: That's exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. Question. Yeah. Do you have the money to hire said actor or are you how are you making your offers for this?
1: Well, we're not doing schedule F, so there's no un- money You know, the offer isn't a money offer in addition to scale. So what we're doing right now is we're becoming SAG signatory. We're submitting the budget. We're submitting the script. We're becoming official. And then we're sending off that are essentially day rates. What is the day rate going to be related to the budget of
0: the film? Mm, mm, mm. So it's going to be less than Schedule F. Um, There's
1: no schedule F. We're not doing schedule F.
0: Not doing schedule F. Yeah, I know. But like, just I know what the schedule F money is, so like, you're not going to be spending that kind of money. Um, oh, this will
1: the... be like scale. Like uh, every yeah, movie I make right. is scale. So like, <laughs> I mean, be not pennies. to like shock everyone at this <laughs> listening to the <laughs> podcast, but yes, it's going to be very little amount of money. No one's going to be like, oh, I will do this for the money, Liz Manichel. No, they will do it if they like it and are willing and kind.
0: So are you um, getting your your little, you know, letter writing skills up to date, getting ready to write some really nice, sweet letters to a bunch of actors to get them to, you know, read your script and take out your movie?
1: Yeah, but I don't have a template. Maybe you have a template. But for me, I just like vomit out enthusiasm and then I have much wiser people turn to help me with restraint, you know, but I will just write like that I loved you in this scene and that I love this and you're so perfect because of this. So it all comes out really naturally For me, and then I edit it a lot. This is is all to say, like, I'm not drafting anything at the moment. We'll see who the casting director recommends. And some of these people we might want to ask to read, like, they might be willing to read. They might not be, like, so hoity-toity. So that might delay Mm. the process, but it also might inform the process, too.
0: I remember the one that you did for Bobby Moynihan. I remember you shared it with us at some point, either when we were on the—I can't remember how—if it was like when you were on, just shoot it, or if you were when you were on our podcast or whatever. But is it—is it, is it going to be like that kind of level of detail, or is it more like, like, is it a page of just you know emotion, or is it like a paragraph of emotion? Like, how much are you putting together for these actors?
1: I think it's going to be like a lot of enthusiasm. What I do is like. When I really like someone, I watch like as much as I can of that, what they've done. And then the idea is like, can I pick specific moments and reference them in the letter to be like, and then when I saw this, I was so excited. Right. So I think it's Mm going to be a lot of, yeah, it's going to be a lot of passion, a lot of personality. I think that in this industry, directors are kind of given the free pass to be emotive, in those offer letters and then Mm. like the producers usually there to like go in and like be the grown up in the room and i'm willing i'm like excited to not be the grown up in the room and just to say Mm. i love you please be in our movie
0: yeah i feel like my letters were always they were so drab and like i was so like you know ruled by fear and like become looking not like a professional that I like made them very like uh prescriptive and like not as like I would like you know say nice things and like talk about the movies I liked and you know whatever but I wasn't like just letting my freak flag fly in a way which I think is probably better to just like be yourself and wear your heart in your sleeve and just like really go for it yeah so I like that. I like that idea. I think I remember when I was doing it for the alternate, I was like so stressed out and just like freaking out that like I just was I didn't want to like screw up or offend oh. anybody or anything. So that was my that was what was driving my my uh my process back then. But I, I like what you're that. saying. Yeah. I want to do I want to be more like you Liz and when I do it <laughs> eventually.
1: I'm I like that. I like I just like complimenting and appreciating things that I love. Right. Like, so yeah. I'm just looking forward to writing a love letter to someone and be. And I think the hard part is figuring out who you want. And then once mm. you know who you want, like then I'm just driven to get them. Right. So it's just. Yeah. Yeah. How can I convince them that I care about them and I respect them and I want to treat them well on our film set? That's how I see it. How are you? What were you, you doing? How wait, are wait, you? No, no, no. One, more, uh, one <laughs> last question. So when
0: they ask you, are you fully funded or are you like, what is your answer to that? Like, what, how do you when you're approaching the agent? Like, what do you guys say when well, like they ask about? I've never had a casting director schedule. I've,
1: ne- I've uh. literally never had a casting director. So I think they're going to treat her differently than they treated me. Mm. With the first feature, everyone was like, are you fully funded? And with the second feature, most people ask, but not everyone. And sometimes we got through the door, but we're partially funded. Like, I'm not going to say in public um, in a recorded podcast what that percentage is, um, but, but it's partial. Like, there's a part nice. of the budget yeah. in a bank account.
0: There is a percentage. <laughs>
1: there is a percentage. <laughs> I mean, why not? Let's use that word. So I think it's it's deferring to my casting director what she wants to say and she said she really wants to be very honest and talk about you know it's mm-hmm. scale it's low budget these are this is the so that she can essentially as, as, she told me that like she had a project where some talent was stringing the project along and then left the project when they knew exactly what the resources were right so I think it's mm-hmm. like being very candid about our resources so that mm-hmm. we weed weed out all the people who are not OK with that up front and then just be super yeah. efficient with our offers.
0: Yeah. I remember when we did this on the last thing I was attached to and like avail checks was the big deal. It's like, oh, yeah, it's, yes. to check your availability, you know, <laughs> and like just trying to get an answer to that question would sometimes be really hard. But yeah, no, it's, it's very fascinating, but I, you know, let me know how it goes with this casting director because I'm, I'm always in the lookout for a new casting director. So, uh, you know, I and love like her the so much person so who's super connected and can get answers quickly and like agents will respond to them. That's like the person you want, you know, um, which is not always easy to find. So
1: yeah. Okay. Well, what are you up to? What's going on?
0: Uh, I wrote two and a half pages last <gasps> night. Uh-oh. Yeah. It was very exciting. <laughs> Yeah, I was just like, I haven't looked at this in a, in, a, in a week. I should look at this. And then I was like, ah, I still haven't finished this this sequence. That I've been writing forever, you know, and then I was like, you know what? Just finish it. And I, I pretty much did. And then I looked back at it again and I was like, oh, there was one other thing I wanted to do this whole other scene I want to write in this sequence. And I was like, I was going to write it to like my to do for next time. And then I was like, you know what? F it. it. I'll just, just write it, do it. right now. And I just wrote it into the scene. I already had like there was going to be like um, a transition scene to get to the next part of the story, and then instead I just made that transition scene the scene that I wanted to write. Or that real great. It was real I fun. I think it's
1: so funny. Like I was listening to last week's show. I was listening to you talk about the fun of writing last week, and it's I I'm like very. There's something comforting about the fact that you enjoy writing. Like, you keep talking about the fun of it, and it's like, I just don't see it like that. But it's, it's like, reinforces, like, that clearly you are a filmmaker, right? That you, like, enjoy writing.
0: Like, that's great. Yeah, I just... I just suck at it. I just, it takes me forever. And then like, I was thinking about this morning, like, it's gonna be so great when the script is done. And then I was like, but then I have to read the whole thing and yeah. then I have to rewrite it. Oh, it's the worst.
1: It's the worst. It just it's the felt worst. like so
0: much work. I was like, how did I ever make a movie in the first place? I don't even know how I did it. <laughs> how did I ever do it? It seems so hard.
1: <laughs> it's just, you get, I can't even imagine writing a novel. Can you imagine writing a novel and keeping track of every single piece of information oh, and in like a 500 page i wouldn't even know i don't know how many long manuscripts are but yeah. like that's insane and like it's just hard to keep track of everything when you write a feature like when did i do that why did i do that are the slug yeah. lines right i don't even know anymore
0: yeah, and then I then I was like just thinking like man like how am I ever gonna make a movie again like this just seems so daunting to to even like if I can't even imagine rereading the script I I I haven't even finished yet like how am I gonna go out and raise money and go make another it just seems nutty you just but do I guess it. that's part of it you just do it yeah it, it'll happen eventually you know and I think it's like it's like looking at those two and a half pages right it's like that is. That's the work you put in one piece at a time. And however long it takes you, it builds up until you're like, you know, securing the first investment on the movie or whatever, mm-hmm. you know? So it's just like, you got to put in, you got to put in the work, you got to do it, you know?
1: Bird by bird, bit by bit. That's all it takes. Yeah. But it, but it's fun. It's, it's a, it's a really
0: fun script. I really like it a lot. It's really nutty, crazy. So I'm, I'm enjoying putting it together and like, it's so different than like anything else. That I've seen, you know, like I, I just, I watched a, I watched Saltburn recently. Have you seen Saltburn? No. A crazy movie.
1: Crazy. I mean, that sounds good. I like the idea that it's crazy, but I'm not. When am I going to see Saltburn? Never. In like I don't know. Years, I mean,
0: I don't know what in, the, in a dark closet by yourself, like <laughs> in 20 minute increments between, you know, raising children. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Um, I, I, <laughs> But, uh, you know, it, it's funny. It's like because the ending of that movie is so like not at all what i expected and like s- almost this is gonna sound really mean i'm gonna say something really mean right now but like like the script that you read like from like an early filmmaker where you're like oh that's a nice neat tight in a bow ending that like doesn't make sense oh. and then like that's kind of like the way, <laughs> the way this oh. movie ended and i was like wait no <laughs> really oh. this is the thing that we're doing right now but I know people love this movie. A couple people told me it's their favorite movie of the year. And I'm like, okay, well, the first half, like, I'm I'm really on board. And then the second half, I feel like it just sort of, you know, it, it wasn't, it just became too convenient, I guess is the word, you know, for the way that it all wrapped itself up. Still very entertaining, extremely beautiful, amazing performances. But it just made me think, like... Man, like what where my brain's at is like so different than like what everybody else is like in some ways. Like I think like I just go nuts with like what I want to do. It's 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 yeah. so much more the Joe Bob Briggs. Yeah. You know, do crazy it the drive-in like, way. it's the drive in way. It's like the we're going to have people exploding here. We're going to have crazy scientists over here. We're going to have you know, it's just like very different than like, you know, what I think people in the world are attracted to. You know, and like what like is like There's super definitely popular. definitely an
1: audience for what you're talking about, though, right? Like all the Joe oh, Bob oh, fans, yeah. the Mutant Fam. Wait, briefly, we're in the middle of Ginger Dead Man.
0: Oh, wow. Sounds cool.
1: Gary Busey is in it.
0: Oh, my God. Oh, what year?
1: Have, have I said enough to like convince you? Is it 2005?
0: Uh, oh, OK. That, <laughs> that now I'm really in- intrigued. Because I thought I was thinking young Gary Busey, but old Gary Busey, that's even more exciting. Wow. Okay. So there's
1: an audience for everything. I'm definitely an yes. audience for Ginger Dead Man, but, you know, like there's <laughs> there's an audience for everything.
0: <laughs> yes. You know what there's also an audience for? is our Patreon page. Check us out at www.patreon.com slash podcast. This is the way the show continues to live, to thrive, to grow. We have a bunch of episodes in the, in the, behind the paywall that you can't access unless you join our Patreon for $1.99 a month. So if you want to hear more of this madness and how it all began back with our original co host, Timothy, way back in the day, you can sign up and check that out. Also, a very, very happy birthday to Charles Coleman for supporting the show. Thank Charles. you so much, Charles. I believe that Charles has supported us before. Oh,
1: for sure. Like, Charles was part of the AMAs that we did. Charles has been, like, at least in my orbit, and I think because of the podcast, been in my orbit for a while. Charles has been cool.
0: I think we've probably shouted him out on the show before. So, like, when I asked him to, like, give us a shout out, he, like, didn't respond to me because he's like, come on, I've already been shouted out before. But, Charles, we can't thank you enough for supporting us and coming back to our fold Really, really much appreciated. Another thing that you should do is check out the Blood and Popcorn Film Festival. It's a micro-horror film festival that celebrates Bay Area filmmakers, San Francisco Bay Area filmmakers, and spotlights international talents year-round with multiple horror film screenings. I've been to one of these screenings. It was very delightful. Enjoy the best-created collection of horror short films and features that offer spine-chilling frights and gory delights. You have till January 16th to get your submissions in, which is... Oh my gosh! It's like tomorrow, and you can use the waiver code Evil Pop Three to get fifty percent off your submission. So find them at www.filmfreeway.com/slash Blood and Popcorn Film Festival. But without any more delay, here's our chat with Chris Perez.
1: All right, so jumping right in, Chris, are you able to just give us a little one minute bio of how you got here today and about the law firm?
2: Yeah, so. My name is Chris Perez. I'm a partner at Donaldson Califf Perez. I've been at the firm for 14 years and it's the only firm I've been at. I graduated from USC Law School in 2009. You know, I was really interested in intellectual property law and entertainment law specifically. And in my third year, I ended up working on a pro bono project with Michael Donaldson, who I knew in the field as one of the few lawyers who actually worked on documentary films and was one of my heroes. So it was an honor to be able to work with him on a project for about six or seven months. And I was in my third year of law school. It was a really terrible time for the economy. Most of my classmates had big firm jobs that were either going in the fall or they were actually being revoked because the economy was you know, in such a terrible place. But you know, I knew I didn't want to go to a big firm. I wanted to go to a small firm or do something in an uh, intellectual property. So when Michael called, I was just thrilled. And by the end of that process, after six or seven months, he offered me a job and obviously I took it. And it's just, you know, it's obviously changed my life and it's, and here I am. So I kind of worked myself, you know, through from law clerk to associate, to partner, to to owner. And the firm, you know, we call ourselves a full service transactional entertainment law firm. And what we mean by that is, when it comes to independent filmmaking, we pretty much do all of the transactional work. So whether it means development work, you know tradi- uh, traditional production legal, financing, company formation, distribution, we can handle all of that. The kinds of things that we don't handle are like litigation and dispute resolution, and we don't represent talent. So most of our our clients are independent film producers and production companies.
1: I have like four questions that came out of that, but briefly. <laughs> I graduated from USC in 2010 and also had a very similar experience where I remember that it was very hard to get a job, Mm -hmm. probably much worse a year prior. At least we had that buffer year. And looking around and seeing all my friends take lesser attractive opportunities or having to stall for several months, right? Mm -hmm. I was struck by you calling Michael Donaldson a hero because, yes, he is a name that I've heard throughout in my independent film career but it is such a like an emotional term for someone who's a lawyer and i hope that isn't insulting to say but it just no. feels like kind of adorable that you have this like lawyer hero that you looked up to what was what was he known for why did you look up to him
2: yeah i mean it, it is kind of nerdy that he's my hero <laughs> <laughs> because he's you know if if you Aren't I guess in intellectual property circles? You might not have heard of Michael Donaldson, but he's very well known for taking an interest in the needs of the independent film community. So he's done tons of pro bono work, you know, filing advocates, amicus briefs on behalf of independent filmmakers, representing Film Independent, which is a huge nonprofit that you know represents filmmakers, and they're still our client today. You know, the the International Documentary Association, which I'm on the board now. So he's always been looking out for the rights of the little guy. And that's something that really attracted me to his firm. And one of the things that he did that was huge was he really opened up the floodgates for fair use mm-hmm. for documentary filmmakers and now actually fictional filmmakers. So for people who aren't familiar with fair use, you know, copyright law grants the author the exclusive right to exploit a work. So you know, if it's a painting, you have the exclusive right to sell it. If you write a short story, you have the exclusive right to publish it and to create derivative works and to write a screenplay and to create a film out of it until you make a deal with someone right, to to exploit those rights. Fair use is a concept that essentially aligns the copyright law that grants those exclusive rights to the author with the First Amendment, basically saying there should be circumstances where you can, as a user you know, use certain parts, limited parts of copyrighted works in order to comment on or criticize them. So for example, if you were to review a book, right, you should be able to lift an excerpt from that book and say how good or bad it was without getting permission from the author, right? Or if you're a documentary filmmaker and you want to lift a clip from, you know, the greatest films made of the the 1970s, maybe that's the subject of your documentary, then you should be able to do that on a limited basis. And that's actually a lot of the work that we do. But Michael Donaldson was a pioneer in the sense that, you know, fair use always existed in the sense that it was enshrined in the law and there was case law around it. But on a practical level, it wasn't really employed by documentary filmmakers very much. Mm -hmm. Around 2008 and 2009, you weren't able to get an insurance company to insure a film that relied on fair use for anything in the film, at least not on a consistent basis. So what Michael did is he went to the insurance companies and essentially said, listen, I'm an expert in this area. If I review these films and I tell you, I think in my professional judgment that this is all fair use, you know, will you provide coverage at a given rate? And they all agreed. So he started that process and, you know, he was able to get, you know, insurance for, for independent films that were relying on fair use. And I always tell people, you know, the so-called golden age of documentary filmmaking kind of unfurled after that. And I'm not saying it's solely because of that, but it was, I don't think it's coincidental. I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, a lot of films were able to be made because especially in those early years where there were very limited budgets for documentary films, and it was very difficult to get permission for a lot of things, fair use was such a huge tool in in opening, you know, that up.
1: I had no idea that he was the Progenitor of of that practice, and that's fascinating to me. And I'm such a distribution nerd. I'm like, oh my god, that's huge because Mm -hmm. I just assumed it was something that had been happening for decades. I guess now, now it has been, you know, close to two decades, two one and a half decades. You said something that struck me about Donaldton Calif. Perez, and it's that you get involved in development. When Mm -hmm. you know, for the emerging filmmakers who listen to this podcast, why would they hire a law firm in development?
2: That's always one of the biggest questions we get is when do I hire a lawyer? Mm -hmm. And I always want to be practical with this answer because, you know, the easy answer is right away, right? Start paying a lawyer to, you know, drop a deal that can either be very easy or very complicated, you know, start looking at rights issues when the fact is that you, you know, for the vast majority of independent filmmakers, they don't have a development budget. They don't have like a studio backing them or even a a big production company behind them. That being said, what what I usually tell people is, at what point are you starting to bring, you know, people that aren't inside your close circle into the project, right? Where you're making an arrangement with someone to say, we're gonna partner on this film and, you know, take it to the next level. So for example, maybe you develop a script and you bring in someone to say, you you know, you know, you're an expert at seeing what people want in the market. I want to partner with you and you know we'll be 50-50 and we'll we'll take it to market. I see that conversation happening all the time without a contract. And I think at that point you really want something in writing so that the two parties understand what the expectations are because that conversation can happen a million times and there's plenty of situations where different people heard different things, right? You know, I use the word partner that has a legal consequence of saying partner. But I think in the field, a lot of people hear different things, right? They think, oh, when I said partner, I really meant that you were like a work for hire producer. And if it gets off the ground, then you're attached. The other person might have heard, no, we were 50-50. You brought me in as your partner. And so that's where the legal battle begins. And hopefully you can get ahead of that. I happen to think that, that forms can be really, really simple at the development stage, So I don't really, I don't like to over litigate things in most development agreements, whether it's a shopping agreement, an attachment agreement, a letter of intent, you know, an agreement like the one we were just talking about, where two people are getting together and they want to create a film, they can be one or two pages. If they're drafted really well and very clearly, then that's all they need to be. So I think, you know, a lawyer is good for that. But one of the things that as an independent filmmaker, you ought to be asking a lawyer, is what kind of things need to go into that contract and how can I keep it as simple as possible while being protected. Okay,
1: that's also really interesting. There are some law firms and lawyers who get involved in the development stage because they all help package a film with with reaching out to talent, reaching out to financiers. Is that something that you do or have experience in or is it something that the law firm avoids? I'm just curious.
2: Yeah, we generally avoid it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> to be a hundred percent honest. I mean, Michael has done it, at least has done it. I've done it a handful of times, but I, you know, it, it really then becomes a whole different set of skills, a whole different set of, you know, people that in relationships that you're leveraging. And I think we decided at as a firm, you know, probably 10 years ago that we wouldn't do that. And it's not because we couldn't, it's because what I always tell people is like, listen, you don't want me doing that. (laughs) Your expectations are here. Uh, There's other people that do that for a living and other firms. And if that's what you're looking for, then you can can go to that firm. But that's not something that we typically do.
1: Well, this, again, this might not be a germane question, but I'm going to try for it anyway. A lot of filmmakers, like, look, I think we all know making movies is hard. It's the name of our podcast, for God's sakes. But getting projects off the ground, everyone has a different theory of what's going to green light something. Is it cast? Is it cast attachment? Is it finding financing? Is it the chicken or the egg? A lot of people talk about letters of intent. You mentioned it earlier with regard to like crew agreements. Mm -hmm. But are you seeing any specific strategies from your vantage point helping get projects off the ground? Is there a linchpin document that you see come together and then for some reason that really helps the momentum of a project become reality?
2: No, not necessarily. That may be a disappointing answer. No, it's okay. (laughs) You know, half my answers will probably be, well, it depends, you know, (laughs) but it's, it's not necessarily the type of agreement. It's more about what the market you know, which way the market is shifting and what kinds of attachments are worth it and which ones aren't. That's the biggest battle that I see that has existed in the industry from its inception, which is, you know, who do you bring into the inner circle at what point? And when do you go to the buyer or the person in charge to say, this is the the film or this is the project? You know, what do you think of it? I've seen plenty of situations where I think we've drafted the appropriate agreement for a producer, but they've made too many attachments, right? And at an early stage, they've brought in too many people to do too many things when they haven't gotten out of first gear, when really they should be focused on the story. They should be focused on you know, the one or two elements that could elevate the project and make it more attractive and then going to a buyer and then going to the next steps but it's not easy, right? Because the market's constantly shifting. You know, I had a conversation yesterday with a writer and his agent, and it's like, you know, the, especially with the strikes coming out of the, the WGA strike, we're finding that the kinds of things that you present to a buyer or a production company are completely different than they were three or four years ago, or the thing that's most likely to get made. For example, it's much easier to pitch a short story in prose right? That the writer writes and publishes and then takes it out and says, I can make this into a screenplay, which is like, I've never seen that before, right? At least not before these last few years. So tastes are constantly shifting. Desires are constantly shifting. Willingness to read long, you know, full length books or screenplays are constantly shifting. And we just have to adjust. But I guess to, to circle back, there's no one agreement that I'm seeing that's like, okay, your golden ticket. This is the one that we, we need for, for all cases.
1: Are you seeing a shift either since the writer strike or maybe even before in how those agreements are structured? And just to kind of add some color, I set up an agreement with my co-writer on my latest feature. And when I went to a law firm to kind of set aside her compensation and her ownership I almost shocked them with how much power I was giving away to the writer. They were Mm -hmm. urging me not to collaborate with her to such a degree. Are you seeing changes in the writer being brought in to have more influence and more power over, over? I know this is a I'm realizing there's like 15 million wormholes in this question. Mm -hmm. So I apologize in advance. But with producers or with co-writers, Are writers being included more into the conversation or are they continuously pushed out?
2: Again, it depends. (laughs) But I think, you know, I, you know, it depends on a few things. One is the, the negotiation power of the writer and how much, you know, experience they have and what their precedent is and all of that, how much the production really wants this writer. But two you know, how long-term is this relationship and is the writer more than just, let's just say somebody, you know, delivering a few steps for them. So for example, I'm working on a film that's based on a true story. And the writer is also a journalist who is an expert in the subject matter that we're uncovering. And this is very nuanced material we need to dig into the to the nitty-gritty to make sure that it's accurate to a certain extent. So, this writer is not only the journalist and the writer, but he's the researcher, he's a producer, he's making lots of decisions when it comes to, you know, other creative elements of the film. So, I think one of the things you have to ask yourself is this is this writer somebody that's, you know, going to provide other things to the project um, and add more value. And if not, that doesn't mean that you don't do what you're doing. But I would say in that situation, you know, how long-term is the relationship and what happens if something goes wrong? What if they deliver a first script and it's just not right? It's just totally what you, not what you were expecting. And in that case, how can you pivot? So I imagine that's kind of what, what your law firm is, is thinking about is the worst case scenario. Unfortunately, as lawyers, we are constantly in worst case scenario land in our heads. Uh, luckily, it's not happening to us; it's happening to the clients. But you know, <laughs> we're we're able to kind of go there to to be sure that okay, in that event, you know, do we have a way out, or do we have a, a, a plan to navigate that that worst case scenario issue? Because you know, with a worst case scenario, you can't always eliminate it. But at least you have a plan and a, a way of you know navigating whatever that that scenario is.
1: And again, reroute me if I'm asking too many specific questions or giving away the gold that people pay you good money for.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm in the micro budget world, right? So when I'm doing an agreement with an actor, I can't play with schedule F fees, or I can't just kind of up the ante in terms of day rates. I always have to play with other contract points. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice for independent filmmakers on how they can incentivize talent to join their production from a contract level?
2: Yeah, my first piece of advice is go in with a very, very good plan, right? Don't go into it. And this may be obvious to you, but don't go into it just thinking, "Okay, well, I'll make this offer. And then when they come back with, you know, a a question or a different request that I'll just kind of wing it. Mm -hmm. That's definitely not the way of going about it, especially if let's say you're trying to cast seven to eight roles, right? And they're all kind of on the same level in the sense that maybe you want to pay them all the same thing. You should be working with someone, and this can be a lawyer or it can be a casting person who understands, okay, I'm going to be going to this agent or this manager with this deal, and this is likely going to be the response this is the the three or four things that everybody's going to be asking for, because I have the experience of knowing that this person or their agent got this on the last film at this level, or, you know, especially for micro budget things, it's one of the biggest challenges that I've seen. And, and maybe you've seen is scheduling scheduling your film in between these massive projects that these actors have. And it's like, okay, we have these three days where you can shoot and then we have one pickup day, but it's gotta be after this other thing. Like that's the biggest challenge, but to have some flexibility, you probably don't have much flexibility when it comes to their schedule, right? But making sure that whatever you offer one person, you've gotta be thinking about, this is probably something I'm gonna have to offer everybody at that specific level, that talent level, right? So that can, you know, you've heard the term MFN, right? And if you go in, you know, with, with actors who are all, you know, MFN at Schedule F and you just draw the line, listen, we're only doing Schedule F plus, plus 10% to pay the, the reps. We can't break that. But here's what we can do. You know, we have 10 points on the back end. We're not going to offer anything up front, but let's, you know, carve out a few points so that if we can be flexible, we offer those points and then we we should be prepared to give this number of points to everybody at that level, right? You know, maybe it's for somebody who's a little bit above the rest of the actors in terms of power disparity. Maybe they're an A-list person. Maybe it's an additional credit. Maybe that's something you actually want, right? You know, there's lots of little things, I guess, and tricks that you can do. But, you know, the biggest pitfall is really offering something that you wouldn't be able to offer anybody else.
1: Hmm. I'm eager to get to distribution, but I I may go back in time after we've proceeded. What are, I mean, I guess let's start here. You're working with a filmmaker. They're they're given an offer from a distributor. What should they anticipate working with you on to make sure they're clear to sign a distribution agreement? What should they be prepared with in terms of deliverables?
2: Well, you just said the the magic word is deliverables, right? So if you have a distribution agreement, it's very likely that you will have an exhibit to that agreement that will contain what's called a delivery schedule, right? And within that delivery schedule, there's usually a reference to all of the video materials that you have to deliver, all of the audio materials, and all the legal deliverables, right? And there's a few other things, but those are the major categories. Obviously, my eye is is drawn to the legal, right? But it's also a good idea to look at what the distributor is asking for in terms of what you actually have to deliver in terms of video and audio right? And I'm not an expert in this area, but I've often had clients who said, who looked at that list and said, oh, I didn't know they needed it in this format. And I'm going to have to go back and spend a lot of money to reformat this. And, you know, maybe we should include this in our, you know, in the negotiation. In terms of legal deliverables, the earlier that you can get that list, the better. When I tell clients it's, you know, of your two guideposts when making an independent film... this isn't always possible because usually with independent film, you don't have a distributor until the end, but let's just say for the sake of argument, you did right. You had a distributor. You got to ask for that deliverables list because that's one of your guideposts. It's basically saying you're at point a and this delivery list is point Z and look at this list and you're going to have to deliver every single one of these things in order for us to pay you. And if you don't, you're not going to get paid. Right? So you know, what's on that list, it's usually chain of title, which is basically, do you have the rights from a copyright standpoint to exploit this film? So if you made a film that's based on a screenplay, do you have an agreement with your writer? Did you pay them? Did you, you know, send us a proof of, you know, an invoice and proof of payment? If it's based on a book, you know, show us the rights to the rights agreement to the book. If you had other writers that you hired but aren't credited, you show us those writer agreements, show us those proof, proofs of payment. So all of that stuff goes into chain of title, and that's the most important thing for a distributor is making sure that you actually have the right to to release this film. The absolute worst thing that could ever happen is not being able to have good chain of title, because then you could have a copyright lawsuit on your hands. That the distributor has a copyright op- lawsuit. And there is the danger of what's called injunctive relief, which is essentially we have the right to stop you from actually distributing your film. So if you can imagine a distributor's worst nightmare, we spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on the rollout of your film, ad and promo, all this kind of stuff. And the court says, actually, you can't release it. Now that's very rare, but that's because most people have done their work when it comes to chain of title. And then there's lots of other things on that list, like, you know, add in promo restrictions, dubbing restrictions, credit obligations. You deliver, you know, a billing block. You have to deliver your talent agreements. So it's a, a really helpful list that will tell you exactly what you need to deliver by the end of the day. The other guidepost that I tell people should be something on your radar is take a look at an errors and emissions insurance application. If you haven't seen one of these, it's like 40 yes or no questions, right? And a lot of them pertain to rights clearance issues. Like, do you have an agreement with your writer? If so, does it contain reps and warranties saying that it's original to them? Great. Do you have any archival materials or third-party materials in your film? Yes. If yes, did you get permission? Hopefully, yes. Right? So again, it's they're asking the questions to figure out what the risk is in terms of defending a lawsuit. But hopefully the mass, you know, the majority of those answers are yes. One of my jobs is once you complete that application, to the extent that you answered no to any of those, no, I didn't get permission. No, I didn't clear this. That hopefully I can write an opinion and saying, you know, why it wasn't necessary. Or if I can't, and I say, well, we actually have a problem. We need to go get permission. But that's again, the ENO application is a great place to just See, okay, what are the expectations of an insurance company at the end of the process in order to issue an insurance policy, which of course is absolutely necessary. You have to get that policy. But those two things together are excellent ways of preparing for, you know, way down the road.
1: What I didn't hear you say, and maybe just because, you know, you can't go into every single item in a delivery list, is Mm -hmm. location agreements. And I've had some clients who have. Because I'm a producer's rep, right? So and I, mm-hmm. I, sometimes I forget to be like, is everything clear? Let's go out and pitch. And then I find out too late. This is something that I've learned the hard way and I'm going to rectify from now on. But anyway, I've had a client who shot at The Bean in Chicago mm-hmm. and it's a micro budget film. You know, we found a distributor, but they did that without permission and it was mm-hmm. a scene you know and mon- it was like a moment in a montage but it is the character running by the bean mm-hmm. when you're in a situation like that what kind of advice are you giving a filmmaker it's already happened so you don't have to worry about this filmmaker actually <laughs> taking this advice but i would just be curious about the level of risk that we should be concerned of as filmmakers but also the way that we need to cover our tracks just in case
2: Yeah. It's so funny that this this scenario is like, sounds like half of my potential client calls because we're so, you know, know, half of our, we do a lot of transactional work, but half of our work is copyright, fair use, you know, use of trademarks, personal rights. So, you know, defamation, invasion of privacy, you know, a question might be, Hey, we were shooting out on the street and we shot this scene, but five people were walking in the background. We didn't get releases from them. Right. you're nodding your head because yes. like that's a, that's a common thing that happens and it's very common for us to get those questions the bean one is a little bit more complicated without getting into detail you know that usually things like that have copyright protection because they're pieces of art but what I would say is it's public art right so it resides in a place that's to be shared by everyone So in my mind when it's in a film and particularly when it's being used as a device to, lend to you know to to establish the setting then unless you're really focusing on it and using it as essentially production design or set design then it should be all right not to clear now everything is fact specific and if i i would obviously have to look at the film in particular but that's the kind of thing where you know if it happened and you didn't get a location release at the time then you talk to your production lawyer. You say, is this something that we need to get permission for? If so, you know how do we get permission? And obviously, your distributor is going to have an opinion on that as well. A lot of our potential client calls come from production attorneys who don't specialize in this area. So your production attorney might say, well, hold on, we need to call someone to, to figure it out. You know, Obviously, the safe thing to do would be to go back and get permission, but that's not always possible, right? Especially when it involves you know, the city or the county or something like that. So in that case, a legal opinion that's accepted by the insurance company and the distributor is, is the way to go.
1: Hmm. That's really interesting. Going into distribution, again, I do help uh, filmmakers negotiate distribution deals. And there's certain elements of a contract that I always look at, right? I'm not a lawyer, but I say you want to have a lawyer look at Bankruptcy clauses or sub distribution Mm -hmm. clauses. And then the things that we usually negotiate are term length or split. Is that similar to the work that you do? And are there other elements of a distribution negotiation that you like to get involved in?
2: Yeah. I mean, I love, and I don't know if this is the case with all attorneys, I love getting into the business deal points. I tell clients if you want us to help you with negotiating a distribution agreement, please include me in the negotiation of the deal terms, right? Which ends up happening about 75% of the time. And, and the the 25% is, well, we didn't engage you until we actually got the long form. So unfortunately we we're, we weren't able to involve you or we wanted to save some money and not have you involved in that part. For that latter category, I really think that's a huge mistake mm. because the the biggest mistake that I see at that point is let's just say you have an agent who's negotiating or, you know, a sales agent who's negotiating the terms of an agreement with, let's just say Netflix, right? They're going to have maybe eight to 10 terms going back and forth that they flesh out. And, you know, a good sales agent will have an understanding of, okay, what's something that we address here in those eight to 10 points. And what do we not address here? What are the things that are just going to be in the long form agreement that the lawyer can deal with? However, There are times where there are things where let's just say Netflix, for example, would at the time of the long form agreement say, well, Chris, you know, you weren't a part of the deal terms negotiation and this wasn't brought up at that time. So unfortunately, we're not going to make that change because you should have brought it up earlier. And that's obviously the most frustrating thing for me. So in those situations, I don't manage the negotiation. Usually it's usually the sales agent but i am taking a look at those terms to say okay well i mean this is an obvious one if we want to you know ask for box office bonuses ask for it in the deal terms i'm not going to ask for it in the long form because everybody's going to tell me you should have brought that up earlier or if you want you know an early termination right got to discuss that at you know the deal term stage so you know just i think think hard about you know involving your lawyer they don't necessarily have to be you know managing the the entire negotiation, but they should at least have eyes on the back and forth between the distributor and the sales agent
1: i weighing in just from my vantage point, because I rep a lot of like when I say micro budget filmmakers, I mean like like two fifty k and below where distributors aren't putting hundreds of thousand dollars into the marketing release of the film they're putting maybe ten thousand dollars and mm-hmm. and that these Distribution agreements are are usually boilerplate where there's very little wiggle room because the filmmaker is just getting like a digital deal and kind of disempowered in the process by the distributor. Yes. And I totally understand what you're saying about box office bonuses and early termination. But I think for the lower budget filmmaker, those aren't really points where they can negotiate. Right. They can't really Mm. ask for these things. I'm partly covering myself here because I am one of those reps who are like, save money, bring the lawyer in for the long form. <laughs> so I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm perpetuating no, this problem. <laughs> listen,
2: there's no, I, I know what you're saying. There are deals where it's like, this is the deal. Yeah. And, you know, in someone in your position, you know, that to be the case. Right. And in that case, the negotiation of a long form agreement isn't a mistake or to bring in an, an attorney at that stage is not a mistake. You know, in that case, I mean you see you've seen these deals there's very few guarantees yeah. it's a big leap of faith by the producer because they might have been sold on what the distributor wants to do with the project but the distributor won't put those guarantees in the deal right they won't you know have an expense cap they won't guarantee a certain spend you know marketing spend on the film but they're still very excited about it and don't worry about it right <laughs> And, you know, I, my conversations with the client then are just, just, you have to know this, right? I'm not going to over-promise you and say, I'm going to negotiate all these things in the deal, but I'm letting you know, here are the risks, but you know, you have, th- th- these are your options, right? So we have to be realistic. But I think a lawyer's role on that point is just to understand, help the client understand where we can go and based on their experience, okay, you know, don't hold out hope for me getting all these different provisions in here, you're going to have to be relatively comfortable with where we are. And I'm going to look at this agreement for red flags, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Speaking to that, I mean, in terms of trends in distribution, just because you're looking at so many offers and contracts, I'm certainly seeing less MGs, less advances for filmmakers, less guarantees. A lot of conversations where distributors are very leery of saying anything confident in this marketplace, in this economy, is that what you're also seeing, or are we just getting different conversations? Because again, you're you're also repping, I think, much larger films. I'd be curious.
2: I mean, we we rep films all over the map. We rep films at the micro budget level, but then then the, into you know fifteen to twenty million dollar films. But yeah, I'm not seeing anything different. I wish I had better news, but yeah, I, I'm seeing a couple of things. One is what you said: lower MGs particularly for the micro budget films. So the lower end films where it's like, great, well, we're going to take a gamble as a distributor on you, but you're taking an even bigger gamble and giving us, you know, essentially all rights worldwide for a certain period of time with no repercussion if we don't do a great job and no advance, right? So you're really rolling the dice. I really hope that changes, but that's been kind of that's not just something that happens suddenly i feel like that's been happening for the last few years the other thing that i'm seeing is just a lot more hesitation on the front end from buyers right so the good news is and this is for you know unscripted projects in particular what i was seeing over the last 2 years was Hey, you need to big piece of IP, exclusive rights to an artist or a band or a sports team. And we're all in, we're going to give you a ton of money. But if you don't have that, then we're not interested. The good news is that in the last few months, I've seen offers on, on films that are really about the story. I mean, they have a great director, a great production company behind it, but it's less about some existing piece of IP that everybody knows is a slam dunk. And more about wow, this is just a great story, and that's very encouraging. The downside of that is that it's the development deals are much more onerous on producers, meaning that where maybe a few years ago somebody at a streamer would say this is a, a great story, as soon as you get you know these uh, short agreements with your talent, uh, we're going straight into production, and here's your budget, it's been approved, here's your cash flow schedule, et cetera. Now the deal is we need a little bit more right this is a cool story but first you got to you know get this agreement and then you've got to film some kind of you know sizzle
1: right right oh wow <laughs> i mean that all tracks from what i'm hearing but it's also just very depressing winding down and this is a very tough question to answer so apologies in advance can are you willing to share just some Common errors, missteps that filmmakers make that you would uh, that maybe they're not even that that emerging filmmakers may not even be aware of that they should look out for at any stage. Just like you were saying, all of a lot of your calls are about the being in Chicago. They're not, but you know, what are regular calls you have where filmmakers have made mistakes, and how can we encourage our listeners to avoid those?
2: Well, one is the, you know, a question you asked about is when to engage a lawyer. I think don't make any assumptions about a relationship that you have and you don't have a contract, mm-hmm. right? Because as much as you know that person, they could be your best friend in the world. They might've heard something different from what you told them or what you thought you had in terms of an agreement. And again, it's, you know, it's always coming down to, I can't tell you how many times I've heard from another producer or their, or their lawyer you know so and so was a partner in this film and they thought it was 50-50 I and mean, it's almost always that and and that is the line when there's no agreement because the lawyer knows that you have a chain of title issue without an agreement and to you know the further and further you get along the line and the closer you are to delivering the film without that agreement the more difficult it is for you to negotiate that deal because they they have you over a barrel
1: they have the leverage yeah
2: yes and so that's, that's one big thing. You know, I'm an intellectual property attorney and we do, like I said, a lot of rights clearance work. So my eye is always focused on those, those tricky rights issues. I teach a lot at USC, UCLA, mostly to film producers. And I only get like two or three hours to basically tell them what I do and what I'm looking at and to tell them the basic, you know, status of the law and all these, where I went to law school for three years doing this like every day. And, continue to do it for 15 years. So I what I tell people at the beginning of the class is the goal is not to listen to me and memorize everything that I'm telling you. The goal is to give you the skill to be able to issue spot. Mm. And really that's what you go to law school to, for is to be able to think in a way that, you know, I don't know what the law is on this area yet, but I know from experience from having heard from somebody that this is a potential issue, right? So I either need to pick up a book or I need to call a lawyer or I need to bring in an experienced producer who's done this before, who can tell me what to do. I don't necessarily need to know what to do. I mean, you've worked on plenty of films, you know, this is a team effort and you need people to, you know, uh, bring a specific skill, but they don't have to do everything. And they can't. Right. And actually that brings me to my third piece of advice, which is never engage a lawyer who tells you they they can do everything. Mm -hmm. There are so many lawyers in this field, and there are people who have lots of different skills and skill sets. There are people who represent talent. There are people who represent producers. There are people who represent writers. There's people like me who specialize in rights issues. When you're engaging a lawyer, I would encourage you to maybe push them and say, well, you do this. Do you do that? Like kind of like your question about representing people in terms of financing and finding, you know, buyers and things like that. Hopefully they answer those questions with candor and if they tell you they do everything, I think that's a warning sign because I know very few lawyers who know everything from employment to tax to, you know, visa, immigration, entertainment, like all of this stuff that ends up being within the world of entertainment. That's why you have so many lawyers specializing. So, I think a lawyer who is you know, modest in that regard and very honest and saying, "Listen, this is what I do, and if i if it's outside of my wheelhouse, I'll tell you who to call. We'll bring them in, and hopefully they have a good network in that regard. But it's the same thing with working on films you you can't do everything by yourself.
1: We have something called the Final Six questions, but we've amended them a little bit for you mm-hmm. and we'll see if they apply. We usually ask someone what's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received, but I also thought we could integrate like career advice, like what kind of advice for you for your own career has been very beneficial?
2: Mm -hmm. Without a doubt, it is understanding that you can have a clear goal that doesn't have a single path.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Right. And I kind of liken it to, let's say you're starting at the bottom of a mountain and you know that you want to reach the peak, right? All you know about it is the fact that you're at zero feet and the peak is at 10,000 feet. Now there's no tra- there's there's no trail, but there are a million trails. Uh, you can go up a gully. You can go up the marked trail. If the marked trail, you know, has a stop sign and you can't get through it, you know, you you take another path. But there are a million ways to get up that mountain. Some are more difficult than others, especially in the legal field, where you know, in 2009, it was very difficult to get a job in the first place. It was even more difficult if you wanted to break into entertainment. And the advice that I got was, you're not going to get the job that you want, Chris. So go into a big firm, work for two years in the corporate department, make sure they have an entertainment practice, and then transition. And I said, I don't want to do that. I'm going to try to find another path because I know where I want to go. But you know, I, I, I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to get there, but I know I don't want to do this. That's not to say that that path is not the right one. I've known plenty of lawyers who have done that but the trick is remembering where you want to go remembering where that peak is at the 10,000 feet because there is an opportunity to go into a firm and then jump into the entertainment practice and then go to a small firm or go into a studio or a production company that path is well worn but the other well worn path is i went into a corporate department at a law firm i forgot where i was going I got addicted to that big salary. I have, you know, loans that I have to repay. And 15 years later, I'm still doing, you know, corporate finance and I'm miserable. And, you know, they, they could have gotten out of that if they had remembered where they were going and stayed true to it. So that's the biggest you know, piece of advice that I'd say.
1: There's such a corollary in film for directors or producers. It's like the agency route or like the nonprofit route or the mm-hmm. YouTube route. But I, I've heard many people who go into development and they kind of, this is not everyone, but they lose <laughs> their soul a little bit and they get that st- sweet, sweet studio money, right? And then yes. they lose sight of their goal. Also, briefly, we interviewed someone who told a story about how they went to like a life coach before they made their first feature, and this guy took him to a literal mountain, and they climbed the literal like they literally climbed the mountain. Wow! As um, a metaphor for what they were about to go through in the filmmaking process, so I just okay.
2: Well, I have to meet this life coach.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's stealing all to... of his ideas. <laughs> we ask what the worst advice you've ever received would be. I mean, is there any? You kind of baked it into your last answer but if has there any been really bad advice that you've received in terms of your own career or that you've heard people dispense to filmmakers
2: yeah the worst advice that i've seen given to filmmakers is you can't do that full stop i hate that answer i hate that answer in particular without any kind of explanation our whole philosophy at our firm is and this is our our motto so it's it's really obvious is helping filmmakers tell their stories, right? So we wanna do everything in our power to facilitate that as long as it's legal, as long as everybody's comfortable with the risk and as long as we can get it insured, right? Those are big hurdles, but at the same time, you hear this a lot in, you know, at studios, at production companies, and even at law firms, people just saying, yeah, you, you don't wanna do that. And oftentimes it's in response to something that's really, really important to the filmmaker. Right. So, you know, it's a lawyer that's not even listening. Right. But even if the answer is no, I think it's got to be told in a way that is sensitive to the filmmaker so that they understand, listen, you can't do this because of X, Y, and Z. And then beyond that you offer solutions. Right. And you don't want to be overbearing. You're not the filmmaker. So you don't want to say, well, you can cut here and you can cut there, but you could say, listen, there's alternatives. You can go get this instead. Or if you really want to get permission, blah, blah, blah. This is how we can go about it. But I know creatives who just hate that answer because it's like a brick wall. And what am I paying you for? Right. Just to tell me, no, I can't do something. So that is my least favorite answer. And it's probably the least favorite answer of a lot of people, a lot of creatives in town, I would guess.
1: I'm going to sneak in a, a last question that isn't one of our normal questions. But you said earlier that as a lawyer, you have to kind of live in the worst case scenario when you're working with distributors. And I come from a place where I don't trust distributors mm-hmm. because of the history of disempowering the filmmaker. There are exceptions; not all distributors are bad. But are you seeing filmmakers being screwed over by distributors? And are you allowed to say? <laughs> can you say this? I don't know. I'd be curious. Yeah, if I have you a are list and I can happen. send
2: you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it, I think most of the people in the world are are good people, right, with good intentions. And I think I, do, I live in the world of conflict and disputes and disagreement. And I honestly believe that people aren't out there to screw each other. You know, it's it, it, it usually happens because somebody didn't, you know, in a, a distributor's case, we thought this film was going to have an audience, but it didn't. And so, you know, unfortunately, we have to devote our energies elsewhere. Right. But we didn't go into this thinking we're going to take this filmmaker's film and put it on the shelf. Yeah, so it can collect dust. Yeah. I think that there is usually good intent, although, you know, let's just say a filmmaker wants to go with a particular distributor, and I've done 10 deals with that distributor in the past. And five out of six times, or five out of ten times, I've had the filmmaker come back to me saying, How can I get out of this terrible deal? I will tell that to the next filmmaker. It's it's my duty. I have to. But you know, it's difficult because in that situation, sometimes it's their only offer, yeah. right? So then it becomes a calculated gamble. So I don't know if that answers your question.
1: Well, I guess the follow up is, have you had to do that for filmmakers
2: to try to get out of a deal?
1: Have you had to impart that there's a history of bad oh yeah, deals with the distributor?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, it's not because this distributor is out to you know hurt filmmakers. It could be a number of different things. It could be the example that I gave that, you know, they they thought there was an audience, but it didn't turn out well. So they devoted their energies elsewhere. It could be that they themselves are struggling, right? Maybe they had a tenant, a team of 10 people. They're about to go into bankruptcy. They have two people. I've had filmmakers enter deals with distributors. And then within that first year, the company goes bankrupt, yeah. right? Me too. (laughs) Hopefully we have. (laughs) It's not as uncommon as you think, especially for these indie distributors. It's such a tough game, right? So that bankruptcy clause, that termination clause, it's so important, right? And you can't always get what you want, but at least you have a lawyer that's looking at it and trying to get that for you. That's a big one. It's just, we all had the best intentions, but we're just unable to to do what we thought we were going to be able to do.
1: Our last, last, last question is making Mm -hmm. movies hard.
2: It's so hard. <laughs> well, I I don't know what the the typical answer is for your that's the your answer. Clients. It's, it's yes. <laughs> it's really difficult, but I got to imagine it's one of the most satisfying things that you could ever do in a life, right? What I always think of is like how many jobs are out there where. You know, you work so hard for something and deal with so many problems that you would never imagine you'd have to deal with, even for very, very experienced producers. But then you get to a point where you have that moment at your premiere, where you get to stand on stage and have that all come to fruition and everybody give you a round of applause. There's not many jobs like that to have that feeling. And that's one of my favorite things is to be in the room when that happens. Because from from my perspective, it's like I had a little part in that. And so I I get I get some joy out of it.
1: It's beautiful. Thanks for being on the show. Tell people where they can go to hire you and hire other people at the firm.
2: Yeah. So Donaldson Califf Perez and you can see you can, you know, we have a website. We're on Instagram at DCP law firm, so you can catch us there.
1: Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes?
0: Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month.
1: That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please.
0: But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show! Liz, what do you remember from your conversation with Chris? Because I wasn't there.
1: What I remember is that the enthusiasm that I felt after talking with Chris was comparable to your enthusiasm that you felt after talking to Alden, how do you say his wonderful name? Aaron, Aaron Reich. Alden Aaron Reich. <laughs> like you and I were talking to, like we were like fanboying and fangirling in equal amounts after those respective interviews. I loved talking to Chris. I am such a nerd for distribution talking to someone who's an expert in like fair use in clearances and all these like nerdy distribution stuff. It was so awesome. I think that like if I ever get any money, I'm going to hire Chris and just like retain him as as a lawyer for me (laughs) because I'm a fan. Yeah, he was great. It was a good conversation. That's awesome. What I really want to ask you next is our question for the game. The game. It's, do you want to do it like sequel? The
2: game. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Uh, what is the game, you asked? The game is a homemade hand spun segment that our amazing producer Eric Toms has created for the show. It is a hypothetical indie film problem, quagmire, scenario, quandary. How many words can I throw in here? He's going to give us a problem, and we're going to see how we would solve it if we were in that problem. So, Arik has not heard this question before, and I'm going to read it for the first time. All right, Arik, you're halfway through production on shooting your passion project. It's the biggest budget film you've ever worked with, and you raise the money in part by getting a name actor to perform a cameo. You're very nervous as you really respect this actor's work, and they have a reputation for being intense. On the day of the shoot, the actor's performance seems off. They're making strange choices and seem all over the place. You quickly surmise that the actor is inebriated. This is the only day you have with the actor, and you have to make the scene work as your investors are anticipating this moment in the film. Do you, A, don't mention anything, and just hope that you could capture enough footage to salvage something in the edit? B, Pull the actor aside and speak with them, knowing this might embarrass them, which could result in an even worse performance. C. Scrap the scene and let your investors know it's not going to happen, which may result in your budget being slashed. D. Other. What do you do, director? What do you do?
0: That's a tough one. Yeah, I. I was a really great story from Andrew Schrader about something similar to this oh with with a famous actor oh but basically it was more about like like just getting on the same page with them and like sort of you know connecting with them directly and like you know talking through like what you needed in the moment and then and then setting them up to deliver so i'd probably do something like that where i would like you know like just talk to them about what we're doing and like get them excited about it, you know, in whatever way. And then maybe gently offer some coffee and some water, you know, and just say, "Hey, I'm gonna have a coffee. You want a coffee? Like let's like you know let's have whatever. It just kind of." Try to ground them a little bit and then just like connect with them directly on a personal level, you know, as a person. And, you know, kind of start from there to kind of see what what they will be able to do, you know, and then make it fun, you know, and like exciting and like engage them, you know, because I think like even if you're inebriated, like I think if you can engage somebody like in a way that, that that can really help to bring them into the moment and like less about what they're ever they're trying to escape into, you know? Yeah. So I I'd, I'd probably do that. And then I think I'd also at the same time, try to like look at the scene and see how I can rewrite it to fit the state they're in, you know, to see like, what can I pull from my story and my, and what we're doing with this scene that will heighten like their performance and like kind of bring them both together Rather than trying to, like, pull them into what I'm trying to do, try to, like, meet them where they're at to, like, make it as cool and interesting and fun as possible with their mental state of mind, you know? Yeah. Because, like, trying to, like, force someone who is drunk and, like, or on drugs or whatever, like, into the peg that you have is, like, almost impossible and, like, completely a waste of time. But to kind of join them in like the journey they're on in that moment and then bring what you're doing into their journey is probably the better thing. Yes. Which I don't know if that makes sense or if this is like a super aspirational, but like this is kind of like the where I would go to if I was in that place and like just try to like connect to them where they are, you know, and then maybe we get something good. I don't know. What would you do?
1: I think that's a really good answer. That's a better answer than what I'm giving. I mean, what I would be doing is I'd be talking to their assistant and I'd be saying (laughs) like, hey, I'm sure you've seen this before. What's the timeline here? Are there ups and downs? Does it get worse than this? You know, like what? And I would probably micro reschedule the shoot in that like push his or her scene to the end or to the beginning or the middle based off of what the assistant says. And then I think there is kind of a backup plan of contacting their agent or manager and saying like this has happened. You need to give us another day. Like this is we your actor cannot deliver. This is not it's not holding up your end of the bargain, so to speak. And can you please can we schedule another shoot? Right. Mm -hmm. But that feels very narc like and I don't want to be a narc, but I just think like if they're not contractually like if if they're remembering their lines, there's one thing. But if they're not remembering their lines and they're being inappropriate and off color, then I think there's different levels of drunkenness that I think are acceptable. Right. Oh, yeah. So it's like, what level of drunkenness is this? And then, like, can you find someone who can help inform how how much worse will it get (laughs) so that you can adjust? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I would do.
0: I I love your answer. I think going to the assistant is genius because I've actually had experience with that before working on a movie and like, you know, like dealing with the assistant and and not not dealing with them, but like talking to them and becoming friends with them. And, like, under, understanding, like, the, the, the actor, you know, through the assistant is, like, a really big win. And, like, you know, they can help a lot in, in, in reeling them in and bringing them to, to what you need from them. And then helping them, can, you know, get you connected to them. Because, like, through the assistant, they trust them. So, like, if the assistant trusts you, then you can help earn the trust of, of the actor, you know. I hope so. Which actually is funny. It's, like, happened to me. On the Francis Ford Coppola movie. So, you know, it was like becoming pals with Val Kilmer's assistant was like really helpful and Val Kilmer like being chill with me, too. You know, Yeah,
1: there's a trust. And there was a lot
0: of insight. Yeah. And there was a lot of insight that they brought into like, you know, the way that this person operates, you know, so that's a definitely that's a huge that's a really great thing to do. I think the narking part like going to the agent or whatever is like the last resort, right? It's like abs- yeah. if like there's absolutely f- a fail, that's a totally I think respectable thing to do and like a totally like like they they need to deliver what they promised, right. you know? But like maybe you as the director don't have to deal with that. Maybe you can like give that to a producer to to that's manage that, you know?
1: But you do yeah. feel like you're like ratting on them in some way and then it feels like, well, then you've damaged a relationship. Not that you should enable just horrific behavior. So there's a back and forth there. Mm.
0: But if it comes from the producer, then it's like you're protected and like, you can still be pals with the actor. And it's like the producer is the one who's like the, the bad guy, you know, (laughs)
1: the enforcer. Um, Because
0: You don't want to be the bad guy as the director with the actor, because then it's going to be harder for that relationship to develop.
1: Yeah. Well, I'd be curious if anyone has anything different to say. You can send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at com. You could leave us a review on iTunes. We would love to hear what you have to say. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. We want to shout out the International Screenwriters Association, which is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through the number of programs they offer. They publish your logline to a network of industry professionals. They have consultation courses, contests, lots of cool stuff. Head on over to networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thanks to Chris Perez for coming on the show. Thanks to Haley Kinney from the Horowitz Agency for setting this up. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Reimut, for doing the editing. Robert Jones for handling all of our social media. And our producer, Eric Toms, for being awesome. Thanks to all of you for listening and talk to y'all next week.